What comes to your mind when you hear the word extravagance? You know, the word extravagant has been defined as spending too much or spending excessively or wastefully, spending beyond what is reasonable. I know it can feel that way just coming home from the grocery store these days because of the prices. It's been defined as being flamboyant or showy. It has the idea of going overboard or doing too much. Now, when I hear of someone spending $2 million on a wedding, I think that's extravagant. I personally don't know anybody who's done that, but I've heard of you know celebrities doing that. I think spending $250,000 on an automobile is extravagant. I mean, what does it do? Make lunch for you when you're driving? Or does it drive on water? I mean, come on. A football team spending $50 million a year for their quarterback. Sorry, Packer fans. Um, That to me is extravagant. In fact, I think what sports teams pay their players just in general today is extravagant. I think there's a lot of things that are considered extravagant in a negative way or that have a negative connotation to them. But what about the worship of Jesus? Is there any place for extravagant worship to Jesus? You know, I think there are many in the church today as a whole or in the church world that would look down upon a extravagant display of worship. And we even see that in our story today. But I got to say, and I think this is what we see, that when it is done right, with the right motive and the right heart, Jesus is actually blessed by it. Today we're continuing this series who does Jesus love? As we're heading toward Easter. And the, the answer today is extravagant worshipers. And in our text, we see an extravagant display of worship and the various reactions to it and the effects of it. But before we jump into the heart of the story, let me set the scene. Verse 1 tells us that this is six days before the Passover feast. So this is six days before Jesus is crucified. And six days before, what does Jesus do? He goes to Bethany to spend some time with some of his friends. Now, who's there? Well, Matthew's gospel tells us that this was at the home of Simon the leper. Now, we know that lepers didn't have homes. When you got leprosy, you were actually banished and you would go out and live, you know, out in the fields or in leper colonies. So no doubt this is Simon the ex-leper because he had been healed by Jesus. And we see that Simon is hosting. He's the host. This is at his house. But we also see that Mary's there and Martha's there and Lazarus is there and the disciples are there. And I want you just to imagine in your mind the conversation, you know, at this gathering. I mean, you have Simon who says, you know, when I had leprosy, it was so painful at first. I mean, every part of my body just just ached. And then he says, and then there came that time where I just I lost all feeling. 
And then my fingers started to, to fall off, and, and I was just wasting away. But then Jesus healed me. And it's hard to describe what it was like to suddenly have my pain go away. My fingers are back. You know, I can touch my, my eyebrows, and they're there. I, I was reunited with my family. I mean, it was absolutely incredible. I imagine that conversation. Imagine that testimony, how incredible it would be sitting there listening to Simon say that. But remember, Lazarus is there also. And Lazarus is like, dude, that's a good story, but I was dead. (laughs) I saw David and and Moses and, and Isaiah, and then I had to come back, you know. Imagine that. It's awesome to tell our stories. I encourage you to do that. You know, after church and when you go out into the courtyard and you're having your burrito and coffee and you're sitting down with maybe somebody that you don't know, say, hey, tell me your story. I love hearing people's stories of of transformation. So we have Simon there who's hosting. We have Lazarus there who's witnessing. Now, some of you are saying, wait a minute, I I don't see where Lazarus is saying anything in this story. And, And you're right. In fact, there is not a place in the entire Bible where it ever mentions Lazarus saying anything, but he's witnessing. How's he witnessing? Look at verse nine again. It says, a great many of the Jews knew that he was there, and they came not only for Jesus' sake, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. And and the, the last verse tells us that many were coming to faith because of Lazarus. Lazarus is exhibit A. He didn't have to say a word. He was witnessing by his life. And listen, witnessing isn't just something that you do. It's something that you are. In fact, in our Wednesday night series that we began last week, Church on Fire, we talked about how Jesus said he was going to empower his disciples not to go witnessing, but to be witnesses, to live vibrant lives that others would take notice of. Pastor Tyler is going to continue that series this week in looking at the prayer life of the early church. But this is really where it starts, is witnessing begins with our lifestyle. And if our lifestyle doesn't match, you know, the words, the testimony that we would bring, then our then our our testimony isn't very effective. Lazarus is here and he's he's witnessing by his life. So Lazarus is witnessing, Simon is hosting, and Martha is serving. Now, don't hold this against you, because some of you, you know, who are Bible students, you you remember. In Luke chapter 10, when Jesus was at the home of this time, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, and he's there and, and, you know, he's sitting down with his disciples and having a little time together. And, and, and Martha, it says, was distracted with much serving. I mean, she is just getting agitated because her sister Mary wasn't helping her. Mary's sitting there at the feet of Jesus, just taking in the word. And Martha gets so frustrated that she literally, picture this, comes into the room, interrupts the Bible study of Jesus, okay, I've had people interrupt my Bible studies. Cell phones go off and, you know, that type of thing. But this is Jesus we're talking about. And she comes in and she's like, Lord, tell my sister to get up and help me. You know, don't you care that I'm doing this all by myself? And Jesus is like, Martha, Martha, you're distracted. You're stressed out with just so many things. Mary has chosen the better part. In other words, Martha, you need to relax. You need to chill. Take a seat. 
And what Jesus was illustrating there with, with Martha is that there's a time to sit, or there's a time to serve, but there's also a time to, to sit. And then our serving is to be the outflow of our sitting at the feet of Jesus, that we need to be getting filled before we're giving out. But now here in John chapter 12, we read that Martha is serving, and there's no negative connotation here. Because catch this, this is Martha's love language. Martha's love language is perspiration. It's serving. And some of you are that way, and that's awesome. Some of you were on display yesterday using that love language as you served all over this campus, the 600 people who came to the conference. And that is a beautiful thing as long as it accompanies, it starts with sitting at the feet of Jesus. So we find that Simon's hosting, Lazarus is witnessing, Martha is serving, and then we have Mary, and she's at her normal place. Every time we see Mary mentioned in the Bible, she is at the feet of Jesus. What is she doing? She's worshiping. She has a very costly bottle of perfume, and she breaks it and pours it over Jesus, and then wipes his feet with her hair, and this was an extravagant display of worship. In the remainder of our time today, I want us to consider three things. The expense of her extravagant worship, the expression of her extravagant worship, and the enlargement of her extravagant worship. We'll start with the expense of her extravagant worship. Verse 3 tells us that Mary took a pound of very costly oil of (coughs) spikenard. An oil of spikenard came from North India, and it was the fruit of the fibrous plant, and it extruded this very earthy, spicy, scented oil, and because of the distance that it came from, it was very rare and quite valuable, and verse 5 tells us that it was actually it was, could have been worth 300 denarii, which was considered in that culture a year's wage. It was estimated that this little bottle or little box of perfume that she breaks open today would have been worth about $10,000. Think about that. Some scholars have even suggested that this costly oil of spikenard had been given to Mary by her father as part of her dowry, and a dowry is what a woman would bring into her marriage relationship. It was kind of like an investment that she would bring into the relationship, almost in the sense that if something happened to her husband, that she had this, you know, this dowry to fall back on in order to be taken care of now we're not sure of this if this was her dowry but it is an interesting thing to think about because the bible says that that we the church are the bride of christ and here's mary in this place where she's bringing her heart before jesus and 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 really just you know as his bride just displaying this incredible display of worship and in the bible we see there was three groups of people that would be anointed with oil Kings, priests, and prophets. And Jesus was all of those to Mary. She was her king, her priest, and her prophets, her teacher. 
So this was definitely an extravagant act of worship on the part of Mary. Mary's, Martha's love language was perspiration. Mary's was perfume. It was gift giving. You know, we do extravagant things for those that we love, right? You know, a young man will go and save up his money to buy a very expensive ring to give to the girl of his dreams as an engagement ring. A husband, a, a dad might, might save up, you know, for a very long time to take his family on a great vacation that they can remember forever. Something that they'll talk about forever. Remember when we went here. Guys, when they're in love with, you know, a girl, they'll, they'll sit down and they'll, they'll watch. They'll labor through pride and prejudice. They'll do that because they love that person, right? Well, it's never wrong, I think, to do something extravagant for Jesus when the heart and motive is right. And that leads us to consider point number two, the expression of her extravagant worship. And there's two things that mark Mary's expression of this extravagant worship that tell us that her heart was in the right place. One was her humility, and we see that in the fact that she gets down on her knees and she begins to wash his feet. Because that was the job of the lowest servant in a house. That the servant that was the lowest on the totem pole, his job was to wash the feet of the guest when they came in. And so we see that Mary was willing to do the work of the most common slave because of her love for Jesus. And the Bible tells us that when we humble ourselves, the Lord will exalt us. That God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. The second thing we see about Mary's expression of her worship is that it was also marked by surrender. And this is seen when she takes down her hair to use it to dry the feet of Jesus. You see, in that culture, women would not take down their hair. They would never do that out in public. In fact, only immoral women would take down their hair in public. And so if you had your hair down, it was like, you know, it was like a stain. But Mary doesn't care. And this was a sign, I want you to catch this, that she was not in any way self-conscious in her adoration and love for Jesus. She didn't care what others thought of her. She didn't care of their gas, their, their stares, their, their ridicules. She not only surrendered her possessions, but she also surrendered her pride. It reminds me of David. We read in Second Samuel, I think it's chapter 5, when Israel is bringing the Ark of the Covenant back into Israel after it had been in the land of the Philistines for a very long time. And David was so excited that to be bringing this back that he leads the procession, but he takes off all of his royal robes and he's dressed in just the, a little linen garment like the servant boys would wear. And he's dancing in front of the ark and his wife, she chides him. She gets on him. She says, how undignified did the king look today? In front of all the people, and David said, I'll even be more undignified than that because of my love for Jesus. It's really this idea that you and I are to be living for an audience of one. 
that I'm not doing anything in my life to be seen by others, to be recognized by others, to get some plaque somewhere that says, oh, you know, look, Rob Salvato did this, or to get a call from someone where they're saying, hey, thanks so much. No, it's saying, I'm doing this only for the Lord. That's all. And extravagant worship happens when I'm not concerned about what others are thinking of me. And I want to just bring this into this context. You know, sometimes when we're having worship and we start to lift up our hands, we think, oh, I wonder who's going to look at me. Or sometimes when we are lifting up our hands or, and, and we, we're raising our voice, and if you're like me, you can't sing very well, and you think, oh, you know, what are, they, what are they gonna, the people around me going to think? But we're afraid to raise our voice. Or after in a response time where we come and kneel, it's like, oh, I could never go up and do that. Because what are people going to think? Listen, we don't need to care about what people are thinking. We need to be surrendered in our hearts and coming to Jesus and, and to be real with him. Are we surrendered as Mary? Does, it, does our life, does your life reveal you kneeling before him? Is this the attitude of your heart in absolute surrender? And so we see there the expression of her worship. And then we see the enlargement of her extravagant worship. And, and we see this in the four effects that it has. The first effect is negative. Judas objects. He says, what a waste. Look at verse 4 again. But one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor. This he said, not because he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box and used it to take what was put in it. These are the first report recorded words of Judas. And it's interesting when the other gospels uh, tell us this story, they don't tell us who said this, but John does. <laughs> John rats him out. You know, John's like, you know, you need to know who said this. And, and, and not only does he tell us who said it, but he also tells us why. He says, you know, he reveals the, the, the heart of Judas, that he was a thief. But what Judas says, and I want you to catch this, it sounds so good. It even sounds spiritual. He, he, and he wanted it to sound spiritual. He says, man, hey, this is kind of a waste. We should be concerned about the poor. But again, John tells us he really wasn't concerned about the poor. That was a thief. But you know, there are people with good motives who can react negatively to extravagant displays of worship. And I'll be honest with you that I have struggled with this myself at times because, and some of you will identify with this, I grew up in a very blue-collar home. My parents were extremely frugal. And that, you know, mentality has been ingrained into me. And so I'm always very, very conscious about, you know, how we spend money around here. And there's been times where something's being done and I'm like wrestling, I'm struggling, like, should, should we really be doing that? You know, is that, but you know what? There are times when it's not only necessary, but it's the right thing to do. When the motive is right and the heart is right. When the motive is, is not to be, I want to be seen by men. 
Remember what Jesus said about the Pharisees? He says, don't be like those Pharisees. That, you know, they go out and they pray and they worship out in public in front of everybody so that they can see them. You don't be like that, he said. And this is the heart behind this. You know, God is never honored by the heart and motive that wants to be seen by others. That is a false spirituality, and God abhors that type of motive. But when the motive is something that is really meant to honor God and glorify God, and the heart is humble and surrendered, God is not only honored by that, but he's blessed by that. And here we see the second response to her worship in verse 7. It's the response of Jesus. Jesus says, let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. For the poor you will have with you always, but me you do not have always. He says, leave her alone. She's showing me some kindness before I die. In other words, Mary's given the roses before the funeral. You know, there are some wives that never get flowers from their husband until they're dead. And then at the funeral, he buys a really nice display, you know, of, of roses. Guys, married guys here, this is just a freebie for you, okay? You know? Get your wife some flowers while she's alive. She'll really, really appreciate it, all right? You know, some points. Mary's given the flowers before the funeral, not at the funeral. Now, don't misunderstand what Jesus said here, though. He says, the, the poor you'll have with you always. He's not advocating poverty. He's not being aloof about poverty. He's not endorsing apathy toward those in poverty. No, what he's doing here is quoting scripture because in Deuteronomy chapter 15, it says, there will always be some among you who are poor, therefore freely share. So this is what Jesus is saying. In other words, he's saying, hey, you're always gonna have the opportunity. There's always gonna be time to to give there's always going to because that need is always there so always be open to share with those who are in need that's what jesus is saying but what he's saying here also to judas is he's setting forth divine stewardship and he's basically telling us it's this is about priorities and this is the principle, if I can paraphrase, there will always be opportunities for generous activity, but you have to seize the opportunity for personal intimacy. You have to be intentional about being intimate and spending alone time with Jesus. You know, I wake up every single day to a slew of texts and emails that oftentimes are about needs. And if I just jumped up and like, okay, I got to go deal with this and this and this and this and this today, you would have a pretty fried pastor. I'd burn out really, really quick if that's how I live my life. Those needs are always there, but I have to discipline. I'm a doer. That's my natural makeup, but I have to discipline myself to spend time with Jesus, to make that my first priority, to sit at his feet. Jesus says, leave her alone. She's doing this for the day of my burial. And I think this is really, really interesting to consider is that Mary has a perception here that no one else had. She catches something that all the disciples missed. I mean, Jesus has been talking several times already about, hey, I'm going to Jerusalem. We're a week away right now. I'm going to Jerusalem where I'm going to be killed. And it's like the disciples, they're missing it every single time, but not Mary. She knows 
She catches it. And I think it's because Mary took the time to sit at Jesus' feet. So she was clued in to Jesus' heart. And that's what happens to us. And in Mark chapter 14, verse 9, I don't have this verse on the screen, but I'll read it to you. It says, Assuredly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will be told as a memorial to her. And here we are 2,000 years later, and we're talking about her memorial. The third effect, real quickly, is the effect on the house. Mary pours this costly oil, this perfume on Jesus, and that smell and that fragrance, it fills the whole house. And you know, that's what happens when we live a lifestyle of worship is that bringing our hearts before the Lord and sitting at his feet and worshiping him, it can have an effect on the whole house. Our whole house can be filled with that fragrant. Our kids, our spouse, people come over, and there's an attitude, an atmosphere of joy and thanksgiving that impacts the lives of everybody that comes in that house. This fragrance filled the house And the final thing that I want you to notice, Mary takes that perfume, pours it over Jesus, and then she starts to wipe his feet with her hair. And here's the point in this. That fragrance was not only on in the house, but now it was on Mary. And so everywhere that Mary went after this, the lambs were sure to follow. (laughs) Just want to make sure you were awake, all right? Now, everywhere she goes, she's smelling like Jesus. And that's what happens when we live a life of worship, where our life is just, Lord, my life is just, it's sold out to you. It's it's about you. It's about your glory. It's about your honor. That's what happens when we respond in in ways of of extravagant worship. And I want to just close today by saying this before the the band comes back out. In fact, I'm going to invite them to come out right now. What would extravagant worship look like for you? I mean, all of us here are different in our life, in our styles, in our means, and in our situations. But I want you to think about that. What would extravagant worship look like for you? What would it look like for you to worship, to do something in that way? Now, again, right heart, humility and surrender, but just a sense of saying, Lord, Jesus, I love you so much, I just want to do this for you. And then secondly, what would the impact be in your life if you began to make it your priority? That not just worship isn't just what happens in in this room, or it isn't just what happens when I'm in my car by myself and I got my music up, but but it's it's a lot, because that's what the Lord wants it to be. It's a living worship. It's a lifestyle of worship. Remember what they said of Peter and John? That they could tell that those guys had been with Jesus. I think it's a good question for us to ask ourselves. Who can people tell that I've been with? What's the thing that is the most just impacting my thinking, my life, that comes out in that kind of way? What would happen?